Welcome to Doing Sustainability, a podcast that features practical and actionable approaches to sustainability, brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we have enlightened conversations with corporate and business leaders on the vision, motivation, actions, and impacts of sustainability. We discuss best practices, fresh perspectives, tips, and solutions to help a company demonstrate its ESG commitment and position themselves for long-term success. Hi, I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's start the show. Today, we're speaking with Joe Raza. Hello, Joe. Hey, good afternoon. Good to be with you. Great. Great to have you on Doing Sustainability. Joe is a corporate sustainability leader with a 30-year track record of delivering transformational sustainability performance that mitigates risks, drives productivity, creates competitive advantage, and gives company and brands greater purpose. The topic we're going to talk about here. Currently, he's the CSO, the Chief Sustainability Officer for Ryan Companies, U.S. Inc., it's a multi-billion dollar national real estate development, design, construction, management, and capital markets firm. You've been there for what, about two years? A little over about two and a half. Before that, he was the director of sustainability and resilience at Jacobs. Now that used to be headquartered in Pasadena. I'm a, I'm a little familiar with it. I've been following this company. Big company, perfect company. Yeah. yeah, I want to talk to you about that. And another role Joel's had, he was the global water resource sustainability manager for Coca-Cola Company. A lot of products in that brand suite there to be. Yeah, uh, yeah, but a lot of different, uh, you know, supply chain. Manufacturing. Yeah, there's a little bit of a story about the genesis of my role at the company, which maybe we can get into. So there are many more experiences and credits here. Joe graduated from the University of Central Florida, where he achieved a Bachelor in Science in Environmental Engineering. He's also a registered professional engineer and on the board of certified by the American Academy of Environmental Engineers. Little fun fact about UCF, which I like to brag about. It had one of the first undergraduate environmental engineering programs in the country accredited. You know, it, I'm old enough that it was really more a master's kind of study area as an offshoot to civil engineering, but UCF built a fully accredited, uh, back time, like it was five-year program. But uh, So I'll take a little bit of pride in that. UCF was uh, ahead of the game a little bit. So... When I was young, I loved to create things and draw things and make things. And then I studied art in college, and then I became yeah. a graphic designer, and then I got into corporate work, and now we're here. That's what I did when I was eight years old. What did you do? I found something that I wrote when I was eight or nine years old. It was something for school, and I said I wanted to be either an engineer or a lawyer. And then when I was 16... I don't know if uh, your listeners are familiar with the Boys and Girls State Program. It's a youth leadership program in high schools. I was one of the candidates from our high school. So in 1984 or five or whatever it was, I had written a bill to protect streams and rivers from polluted runoff and uh, presented that on the floor in a mock legislative session. You know, it was all just youth training. So I came about it honestly when I was pretty young. And I think when I think back on it, you know, growing up in Florida, it's kind of a beach culture, water life. And I was always out and about. And I, my eye was always the young kid just to pollution. I didn't really understand how people, you know, could just throw things on the ground. And that was like a little bit of my making observation and feeling a little bit impacted by it. You know, then of course, that was kind of the passion for the fuel. And then when I went to university, I was really more 
attracted to complex problems. So I consider myself a problem solver and uh, really kind of strategically framing things and studying, learning. Got drawn to the value, both the ethical value, the brand value, business value. So I had this kind of passion to problem, to purpose journey in my career that but it started a long time ago. And I know people don't like it sometimes when you say you've been doing sustainability for almost 30 years because they think you're making it up. But I kind of feel like I was. No, environmental engineers have been doing it for a long, long time. And there's been a lot of professions that have. But you're in a new, I mean, this notion of chief sustainability officer, it's, it's relatively new in business. It is coming up on its own. I think not all C-level positions are the same level. You know what I mean? And so... I report to the chief operating officer, which is fantastic. But the job, to me, there's a lot of different sort of types of people. And I'm a big advocate for sustainability business strategies, not sustainability strategies. I think in the modern era, we can talk a lot about some of the policy trends, the environmental and risk trends, the market trends. But to really deliver highly sustainable solutions, you've got to be really good at organizational strategy, understanding what drives growth and profitability of your enterprise, what creates risks to those growth and profitability outcomes. And so to me, it's really um, a very strategic business strategy type position. And I think some of the CSOs out there are like that. Others are just to, you know, kind of put their shoulder to the plow and reduce the environmental footprint, which I think we all have to do that as a minimum. But uh, I imagine you talk to a lot of different people in these roles and they all describe it a little bit differently. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are still trying to figure out the CSO role. In your case, you report to the chief operation officer, and you know many other cases, it's the CDO, and it's just part of the C-suite. And then you're building out your team, and and you have the whole, or then there's there's there's, there's people within the corporate within the structure that are have dotted lines to you, right? They may lots of it. Yeah. So yeah, you know, it's. Still evolving. And as an engineer, I think that really gets down to the nitty gritty as far as a lot of people who are sustainability officers that certainly we've talked to, they don't come from that background. And so being able to plug it in to really operationalizing sustainability and understanding what it takes and uh, that whole perspective, I think, is really valuable. Because that's the part of sustainability we need more of, rather than people just talking and not reporting to an operational manager. There's also, I think a technical background has served me well over the years. And I think still today, I think it matters. You know, you need to understand technically what is going on, particularly when you're trying to reduce emissions or adapt or mitigate or understand policy and how what the implications of that policy could be. I think a technical background helps an awful lot, but you, know, you hit on something that I think is one of the toughest challenges of people in my role is integrating it into the business. I always say, everybody, if you're doing sustainability correctly, it's like an MRI on the entire enterprise. It's like a big x-ray of your whole enterprise. Mm-hmm. And you're trying to, you know, the guiding principles are integrated into existing process, integrated into existing decision-making, you know, build that out, support it with people, tools, and resources to move on. Sometimes you find yourself in the position of trying to integrate into a process that exists. So you find those places like you really figure out how an organization really works. And if it's a highly process-driven enterprise, I think the path forward is a little bit easier. If it's not, you're trying to integrate it into people's minds a little bit as opposed to into business process, and it becomes more of a challenge. But people ask me what my job is. I always say my job is change management. 
And so I was trying to get people to change and to think differently. And so new process, new awareness, new education tools. That kind of That's stuff. not easy. People don't like change. They really don't. And, you know, we focus on the business case. I think to me, doing this for so long, I think that we're all, all of us are passionate. I imagine a lot of your listeners are pretty passionate about the subject, but people in sustainability, we're like a walking, talking Rorschach test, right? We walk into a room and we start talking and you can almost see where people are on the political spectrum, right? And so, you know, I always say folks that are not really into this who think it's some kind of left agenda thing, say, well, let me show you the business case. Let me show you where all our business partners are going. Let me show you where our clients are going. Let me show you where the policy is going, where the insurance costs are going, all the way down the line. And then I also have to talk to my super passionate environmental friends and say, listen, you know, we can't have everybody do everything everywhere. We have to be smart. You know, you have to be articulate on the business case. You have to meet people where they are, maybe have a little bit of patience, you know, understand that they're going through a chain. It's really about the business case. You had uh, Bonnie Nixon on your show and mm -hmm. she had that phrase where she's the first person that I heard it from, which was activist. And I think we all need to be factivists. Like, let's just talk about the facts, you know, and in any executive level group, C-suite level, all facts are friendly, but they are just what they are. So we really focus on looking at these big trends, what are portents for our business strategy. And, you know, then we can argue if I'm wrong, well, we'll fix it. But if I'm right, then you need to do something different. Yeah, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about uh, your current role. Been there two and a half years. What are you most proud of in those two and a half years? Well, I feel like, um, you know, uh, we've got a really great team. I got to tell you that. But probably the number one thing was just some context setting a little bit. The commercial real estate space and construction specifically, I would say construction is a little bit behind the times. It's a tough market, margin to stand, and sustainability haven't fully penetrated the construction space. It has a little bit in commercial real estate, more broadly because of lead and, you know, office building certification. But with that backdrop, we went from, I call zero to zero. I got a little piece out on this. But so within a year, we made a commitment to go net zero carbon scope one, two, and three by 2040. So they went from really nothing at all to here's the business case, ladies and gentlemen of the management and executive leadership teams. This is why we need to move down this road. And this is why we have to sign a sheet of paper. We have to be pot committed. We'll figure it out, but we've got to be totally committed on this. So I take great pride in that just because it took a lot of effort in terms of business strategy, business case, developing decarbonization pathways and charting a course. But it also revealed to everybody the immense market opportunity here. And I think that's what tipped the scale. I really was interested in some of your LinkedIn posts. And when you're talking about one thing, you were looking at GHD and you were saying GHD analysis indicates businesses with strong focus on sustainability experience five-year aggregate revenue growth up to 5% higher than those with a lower emphasis on sustainability. And that's what you're really talking about. I mean, it makes sense. Let's talk about a couple of things here. This is exciting, and it's going to sound like a, an absolute time bomb, but I mean, this is the kind of stuff that's in the head of most CSOs out there, at least it should be. We came off of COP28 and the global stock take, and we know that we're the global carbon budget is going to be bent pretty quickly. We're going to spend about 90% of it in the next two or three years. The NDCs coming out of most of the national, you know, the parties, the Paris Agreement, the goals don't add up. And so the stock take is indicating we're behind. And then 24 is an interesting year because folks are going to be looking at their 2025 goals and there's going to be winners and losers in there. And we know that most sustainability goals are on five-year time steps, 2020, 25, and 2030. And then you have the UNMEDs, which run like 2000 to 2015 and then 15 to 30. So everything is converging on 2030 right now. And when we get into next year, everybody's going to start to look 
at are we on track? And the pace at which companies are setting net zero carbon commitments is pretty substantial. And I would say that in the next year or few years, those goals and commitments are going to start to trickle into the purchase of buildings, the things that we do. We're buying buildings, right? So we think that there's a big opportunity, and that's why we're investing pretty significantly in capabilities, which is a business strategy. So and we know that we can probably grow our position in the market. And then more broadly, I think there are some risks to asset market value in the future, which we also have to admit, right? And when people are going toward their 2030 goals and they have to buy a building in 26, 7, or 8, they're going to have to look at the carbon performance of that building and what it means when they add it to their portfolio and progress toward their 2030 goals. So we just see a lot of pushing and pulling forces. And, but net, I think there's a huge opportunity in the market can elaborate on some of the other trends there, but you know, climate risk of those costs are going up. And so how do you mitigate some of that? So there's just these big trends that speak the opportunity. You can make a little bit more or to lose a little bit more. To bring you right into another post that you had about uh, Next Era's water hub at Piedmont Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. That to me was the first time I really thought of a big enterprise making a change that is going to have significant change to their footprint. Absolutely. You know, Nextera Energy has that water up and, um, you know, it's saving, I forgot the exact numbers, but it's, you know, it lowered the water footprint of the site by about 40%. So they're taking in less water, they're discharging less water because they're getting more circularity around that. And, you know, and so the hospital, it's a good thing for them to do it. But um, you think about the resilience benefits of that in other locations and water stress locations and things like that. You know, they can take less water off the water supply and they can uh, utilize that over and over again, depending on, the, you know, the degree of evaporation on site. So I like those kind of technologies and they have an interesting delivery model where you don't absorb the capital expense. You know, you can just uh, get water as a service with that thing. And so in the commercial real estate, you have to create two or three options. Do we want to take it as part of a capital expense in original design and construction? We want to bring in partners that'll cover that capital expense and we'll sign a purchase agreement so we don't take that, we take it. And that model works for solar as well. And so we're making sure that we have two or three different scenarios depending on deal structure so that we can, you know, decarbonize and improve water, improve waterfront in a way that fits in with the economics of the deal. Yeah. And, you know, um, to reuse it for heating and air conditioning systems, I just, you know, thought of these huge high rises and how much different that would be. And in California, we have Kern County, I mean, with what's going on in the Central Valley. And uh, my daughter goes to UC Davis. I drive up that five all the time. And there are signs for drivers to read that are talking about all that's going on with water in the Central Valley. It's huge. And, you know, it produces how much of the fruits and vegetables for the entire country. And uh, they're really scared that water supply and all the tables are being taken down by all these various things. It's a huge issue. And a lot of them, there was just an article recently that talked about how a lot of those families are abandoning the farms and building warehouses, huge warehouses, because they can make a lot more money and it doesn't require that kind of worry with weather or with water. So what happens to food supply in this country when that land all becomes huge warehouses, you know, for Amazon and for, you know, whatever? 
California's fascinating. You got all the water coming out of the Central Valley. You got the Colorado transfer coming in. You've got the reopening water rights discussions. I think at any moment in time, there may be 20 to 30 state-on-state -state litigations around water. And companies really need to, uh, not just in terms of agricultural productivity and food security, which you were alluding to, which is very important, I think for the private sector business, understanding their exposure to these risks is really important. And you know, when we're building out our business case to try to promote greater sustainability, we look at the financial components, operating expense, capital expense, and, and other kind of costs and things like that. And then we say, all right, well, look, you know, you're in a super high water stress location where the long-term supply reliability of water probably is going to be okay, but we really can't guarantee that. We don't know. And, you know, and this might be a 50 or 150 or $300 million investment. So what do we need to do to make sure that we're covering all of those risks and thinking both in terms of making that footprint of that asset as small as possible and then coming in and investing in either the water infrastructure or the watersheds and something that produces a volumetric benefit equivalent to what that asset uses. So it's kind of net zero on the water grid, so to speak, in that location. And if you do that in a way that drive that social value, what's locally relevant to people, that's how you make the connection between financial value and risk and to minimizing risk to your investing in communities in ways that people say, gosh, they really get it. They really care. Community. They're making the right investment. This makes sense to me. And gives that business, uh, you know, greater presence locally. And I think it adds net net to the value of the brand and the reputation of the company long term. And there's so many unknowns. In one year in Southern California, we went from severe drought to we have plenty of water now. One year made a huge transformation. So there are so many things that are happening that are unexpected or unseen. And, uh, you know, your best plan sometimes will be disrupted. I was just going to say that um, today, I mean, as I say, we're going through a cold spell for California. It's only in the 30s or whatever. But in the front page of the paper today, it's talking about how it's been the hottest year. So everywhere that you go, you see extremes, hot, colder, hurricanes, more of this, more of that. So, I mean, it's really, it's just gotten to the point where people can't deny it. And that's, you know, on the one hand, fortunate, but it's also scary. And, you know, hopefully it's going to catapult these CEOs and top management to, you know, start to dedicate budgets to really addressing it. I think a lot of the CEOs, I mean, there's kind of, I see it as three primary forces, and I spend time really trying to explain this. I'm fortunate enough to meet with our CEO on a regular basis. Brian, he needs to, he wants to understand these issues. He needs to understand these issues. And, and you have to communicate at a high level briefly, you know, in a compact way. And I'm like, look, there's three things talking to us, the environment, public policy, and the market. So the environment is all the climate change and it's up and down temperatures and, you know, uh, physical risk, et cetera, from climate change. Then you got public policy, you know, the United States with their NDCs and, you know, their climate action plan and all policy and incentives and they're focusing on buildings. So we talk about that and, you know, local energy codes, it's just a million things to pay attention to there. And then you've got a market and just the, the rate at which companies are making net zero commitments. They're, they're all big deals. And so... That's how we kind of combine all of that and say, I'm not trying to scare you with, uh, you know, climate change. I'm saying, look, A, the insurance companies are increasing the cost of construction insurance. They're increasing the cost of property insurance, price in these risks. We have all the studies. And so these, you know, it makes it more central. It gets back to that 
activist uh, business case stuff. We just put it on the table. But those messages resonate. They get it uh, when yeah. we relate it to how we make money, you know. One thing that I've been thinking about is in our business with design, I've been working on a lot of sustainability reports. They're just beginning to recognize that it's not just about reporting your strategies, your initiatives, your progress on your goals, et cetera, but it also can be a boost to your brand, to, you know, really changing, enhancing your reputation, your differentiation, your even your market value. And I think that when it gets there and people really understand that there is going to be a relationship, not only in being able to have compliance soon with climate change and these things, but in the fact that it's really, it will be and is already part of the evaluation for your market value and of now. It's like, you know, especially with mergers and acquisitions, you are to see it. I mean, if you don't know what your partners are going in, your supply partners and a company's footprint, people aren't going to want to acquire you. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, and I think, you know, let's say in two or three years, I don't know when the timing works out, but I think part of the due diligence for acquisitions is going to be to look at exactly that. What am I taking on, right? You know, we're looking at the SEC has got their climate disclosure that's pending. You're in California. They've got two Senate bills that require disclosure of carbon footprint. You know, we've got more and more customers in the market needing to know who they're doing business with. So that transparency it's kind of a done deal. And, you know, I'm also a little bit intrigued with the federal acquisition regulation. We do a lot of work with the United States government, but, you know, they're building in under that. They've written in some climate disclosure and carbon reduction goals into their procurement. And they buy $650 billion a year worth of services. And they're saying, hey, you, you know, anybody doing business over a certain level, you got to report your carbon. So, you know, this is just yet another reason that just feeds to the business case of, yeah, we've got to do it. You know, I like the idea of, you know, reporting helps your brand. I think it has to be on brand. You have to have you tell your story in a locally relevant way. And I think it's really meaningful when you create that equation between the impact your business has and the investments that you're making and how you hit on that social, environmental, and economic report card coming out of those impact investments. In my experience, that's what resonates with the broadest audience. And you can do that in partnership with your business partners. We're having a lot of discussions to say, hey, we looked at your sustainability strategy. This is our strategy. We're doing business together. Why don't we do some impact investing around the business that we're doing together? You know, and so, um, you know, we bring all of that together. That's that's early stage for us, but we do have some in development. They're very exciting. Joe, I'm really curious. When you were at Jacobs, were you there during the rebranding? I can't remember, actually. Because they rebranded from Jacobs Engineering to Jacobs Solutions. And in 2019, they did an integrated report, uh, which we talked about the branding efforts, but they were integrating the sustainability report along with the corporate added report. And that's something that I thought would catch on more. I thought by 2022 and going into 2023, we would see a lot more integrated reports. I don't know, but I mean, I don't know the answer to that. We'll just uh, rip a little bit on that and what I think. I think, you know, a lot of the uh, CFOs are, you know, getting bombarded with ESG messaging. So I think there's just a little bit of pushback on general sustainability reporting, the green hushing that's going on, which is, you know, unfortunate and kind of silly. But 
So I think that has an effect on that. And you know, when you look at the anti-ESG sentiments, there are folks out there that are just you know, simply climate deniers and they don't believe it. And okay, we get that. There's also sort of market rationalists or market philosophies that think these things should be separate. You've got other folks that are just more economic rationalists that think that, you know, it's going to be fine. That kind of thinking, though, is it's because the CFOs of the world and the CEOs are consuming information in almost a confirmation bias kind of way. They're reading the Wall Street Journal and those kind of things. And those publications will cite research. I've gone through and done this where I've read the, the article. Then I went back and found the underlying research that they were referencing. And you can see that a lot of the research is much more balanced much more like, hey, you know, it's more academic in nature. It's like, yeah, well, we could be wrong here. We didn't include that. You know, there's some incompleteness there and some uncertainty here. And I just feel like some of those folks are drinking that Kool-Aid a little bit. And But as long as we report sustainability, I think that's kind of the main thing. You know, I mean, I go through and I kind of a sport, right? I mean, a hobby. I go and read sustainability reports from companies all the time. And see which ones are super transparent and how they're connecting rocket to, as you were saying, how does it reflect their brand? How does it connect back to their business? And after a while, you can read those things with a little bit of x-ray vision and say, okay, this is legit. Like this is very much focused on dropping the footprint and creating value and others. It's a little more of the spray, pray and say strategy, right? Spray some money, pray it does some good and tell everybody what you're doing and a more public affairs approach. I was just recently writing something for our blog about bringing together both design and superior, transparent, accurate copy and the powerful tool that that becomes as a communication tool. Copy or data? Yeah, yeah. And what occurred to me was that the sustainability report is really unique because it's moving into the place where it is so important to so many potential departments within the company. And that's why most of the sustainability teams are, they have multidisciplinary people involved with it. But I mean, they're so important for talent recruiting in the future. They're so important for IR, for attracting investors. They're so important for even PR, where, you know, they're in communities and they want to either communities that they're already serving or ones they want to be in. You know, they're so important for marketing because the customers, you know, to build customer loyalty and to please, you know, people who are and connect with people who are that resonate with your brand purpose and values and things like that. What other document does that in a company, you know, that's going to turn into hard dollars? Yeah, because I mean, it's a way to show the sustainability of the products you put into the market. And as the demand for more sustainable product in the market increases, right, it's the report that tells that story perfectly, right? I mm-hmm. mean, you know, if you're, if you're reporting it correctly and telling the story, which that's what I was alluding to earlier, I agree with you totally. You know, you got to connect it to the impact that you're having and, you know, you're taking actions that are directly focused on mitigating that. I think when you can weave in, local relevance to local communities and showing that it's more simpatico with the local communities. I think that's really important. But I agree with you. And I think we're going to see a lot more sustainability reports coming up here as these closure requirements come out because people are they're going to probably be a little bit reluctant to just put their numbers out there. They're probably going to have to put a story around that. One thing I always encourage people in reporting, and I hope, you know, you, I'm sure you all are experts at this, so you do it, but is make sure your commitments are clear up front. Make sure everybody knows exactly what you're committed to. What are the North Stars that you're trying to do? 
I'm sure we've all been involved with those discussions. And there's kind of, I found there's kind of two types of leaders out there. One is um, what is the right thing to do based on business case and ethics and philosophy? What's the right thing to do? We'll make that commitment. We'll figure out how to do it. Or there's the other ones that, okay, I like it. Show me how I'm going to get there and prove to me that we can make every little step of that way. And, you know, and, and then we'll make the commitment. My question to, the, to you and your listeners is which one's the real leader there? You know, and I would say that, uh, you know, the former is, right? You know, the one who said, what, you know, he or she says, what's the right thing to do here? We're going to figure that out, and then we're going to move forward. And so I know some of your folks out there, some of the other sustainability listeners are struggling with that because some of their leaders are probably saying, show me the exact pathway I'm going to get there and all the costs. And- well, one thing that I am also frustrated with, sometimes people just want to report the change in the data of this year. And it's really only meaningful when you really have those comparisons of uh, the trend of what you're doing. And some people resist to really showing you that. And even if it doesn't show a trend up, it shows a trend up, down, up, whatever, over five years. At least, you know, that you can be confident in the transparency if they're really addressing what the challenges were and why they had a problem, you know, in not meeting that goal. And it was, you know, what the result was the the next year when, you know, they did this. But, you know, a lot of reports, uh, you know, I just find it's meaningless when you tell me you reduced your energy 20%, unless I really know the comparison year to year. You know, you make a good point there. I mean, you know, you guys have more experience with it than I do, but I mean, what's your advice to those clients, right? When they, you know, look, it went up, it went down, it went up, it went down. We're doing everything we can. We're trying, you know, like, that's a good message. We're getting beat up a little bit, but we're totally committed. And, we, you know, we're learning and we're trying to figure things out. And um, I find that, that transparency is all about being vulnerable. Like, we're all in this together. We're trying, you know, here are my numbers. We're working on it really hard. I just feel like that comes across as authentic. And they like that. You got to be strong to be vulnerable. And so many people are afraid to be vulnerable out there. They think it's a weakness. We're going to have this conversation five years from now. What do you think is going to be going on in this sustainability world? I think it's going to be a completely different world. I think net zero is going to be uh, table stakes. And I think people talk about carbon lock-in, how our whole economy is locked into carbon right now. I think that you're going to see net zero market locked out. I think the the companies that are not building their capabilities, understanding what net zero carbon and brought sustainability broader, but I'm focusing on carbon given all the milestones coming up. I think organizations that didn't invest in decarbonization, didn't understand what it meant for their business, didn't understand what it meant for the goods and services they put into the market. I think they're going to start to feel, and I think there might be an interesting plot twist on disclosure because I think, you know, not having a net zero carbon commitment may be a vulnerability for your enterprise given the market capture of net zero carbon commitments. So I feel like we're going to be in five years. It's going to be right on the eve of 2030 with all these milestones coming due. And um, there's going to be some winners and there's going to be some gnashing and teeth. Fascinating. I think you're right. Wow, this has been fantastic. I can't wait to go back and re-listen to this. Sometimes when you're doing these uh, these podcasts, you're listening, but you're thinking at the same time. Thank you for all the great insights you shared with us. I'm a fan of the show. It was really an honor to be on here, and I appreciate what you both are doing here. I think it's really great. I think a lot of CSOs out there are listening, and more should be listening because uh, 
I really do learn a lot from the folks that you have on the show. It was just great to be here with you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. All right, see ya. Thanks for listening. This is just a reminder to follow Doing Sustainability wherever you get your podcast. And please leave a rating and review if you like the show. It helps others discover us. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to learn more about our agency, Baker, and how we can help you build your corporate brand, align your culture, and evolve your ESG reporting, head to bakerbrand.com. See you in the next episode of Doing Sustainability, where we focus on practical and actionable approaches to sustainability to create long-term value.